How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. At Climate One in 2009, Stanford climatologist Stephen Schneider launched his book, Science as a Contact Sport. Dr. Schneider was the first member of the Climate One Advisory Council and passed away suddenly in July. Today, we welcome two prominent climate scientists to pay tribute to Stephen Schneider and to discuss the state of science and communication in today's political climate. Are scientists doing a good job communicating their findings to the public? How can they do better? What have they learned from recent controversies? What do the latest climate models tell us about what we can expect in coming years and decades? Here to discuss those questions and more with our live audience in San Francisco are Ben Santer, climate scientist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, and Noah Diffenbaugh, professor of environmental earth science, system science, at Stanford University. Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you both for... uh, for coming. Uh, ben Santer, let's begin with you and tell us what contributions did Steven Schneider make to climate science? What lasting contributions did he make? Steve was in at the beginning of climate science. Um, he got in on the ground floor in terms of trying to understand human impacts on climate. He made uh, fundamental contributions to our understanding of how clouds affect climate. Uh, fundamental contributions to our understanding of how aerosol particles um, affect climate and was one of the early voices in the whole debate about the environmental consequences of of nuclear war and how the smoke um, Mm -hmm. from fires generated by nuclear exchanges might uh, affect Earth's climate for years to come. Uh, He was also one of the pioneers in terms of understanding the effects of the ocean on climate, how the ocean... um, acts to, to delay uh, the, uh, the climate change that we've committed ourselves to, the huge thermal inertia of the ocean. Uh, he published some of the first papers uh, looking at the role of the ocean in climate change. Um, I first intersected with Steve because uh, he also made contributions in an area that's of particular interest to me, trying to understand um, the statistical aspects of climate change So we know as climate scientists that there are natural fluctuations on climate, that Earth's climate does fluctuate uh, without any human intervention at all. There are changes in the sun's energy output, changes in the amount of volcanic dust in the atmosphere, natural uh, modes of oscillation like El Ninos and La Niñas, which we know here in California. And Steve looked at the problem way back in the 1970s and early 80s Against this background of climate noise, when and where might we expect to see the signal of human intervention on climate? Um, With his wife, Terry, Steve also made uh, pioneering contributions in our understanding not only of the effects of climate change on the physical climate system, but also the impacts of those physical climate changes in temperature, rainfall, atmospheric circulation on living things, on the distribution and abundance of of, uh, plant and animal species. Uh, In the later stages of his career, 
he got uh, heavily engaged in the economic implications of climate change. Uh, how do we identify levels of dangerous anthropogenic interference, um, tipping points in the climate system? What would it cost to put in place climate policies that would avoid reaching those tipping points? Um, so he made fundamental contributions uh, to climate change science, to looking at the impacts of climate change, and more importantly, I think, uh, to the communication of climate uh, science to policymakers and to the general public. We'll get to communication for sure. Uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, you're uh, somewhat younger than Steve was, sort of a, a representative, uh, deliberately so here today, as sort of a, a new generation of, of climate scientists. Do you recall learning from or reading the work of Steven Schneider when you first started to get into the field? Absolutely. Um, actually, the, the first I intersected with Steve was uh, when I was an undergraduate at Stanford, and uh, I was uh, in the Earth Systems 10 class, I believe it was, uh, in the School of Earth Sciences. And Steve gave a couple of lectures. It was relatively soon after he had come to Stanford from the National Center for Atmospheric Research. Uh, and he talked a lot about clouds and, and climate modeling, and, uh, which, is, which is what I do every day now um, in my, my regular day-to-day -day work. So you know, I was, I guess, a, a sophomore in college when I first intersected with him. Uh, I remember he gave an uh, outstanding uh, talk when I was a graduate student at UC Santa Cruz uh, that made quite an impression on me as well. And then I've um, bumped into him at conferences and, and uh, in the airport once uh, uh, prior, to, prior to joining the faculty at Stanford. And then my office was right down the hall from him uh, for the last year or so. So uh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he, he was a giant in the field. Um, as Ben mentioned, he, he rightly gets an uh, enormous amount of credit for his uh, skill at communicating the science, but I, I, you know, fundamentally he was he was uh, a leading pioneer uh, over a very long period of time on some very difficult scientific problems. Well, let's talk about the communication. Uh, he, some people think he had a unique ability to make complex science accessible to a, a mainstream uh, public. What lessons have we learned from the way he he did his business and the way he talked about science uh, in a way that that you know. The, average people can understand. Ben Sander? Well, I think that uh, it's unique to combine the things that Steve had, both uh, cutting edge uh, scientific expertise uh, and the ability to translate that uh, complex science into bite-sized, readily understandable terms. That's a gift, and Steve had that gift. Uh, he also had the ability to connect with anyone, not just with other professors or um, uh, people who were experts on climate change, but with members of the general public, with um, policymakers, with the media. And he had the ability to convey his passion for what he did, um, that science was exciting, <laughs> that the joy at understanding things is what drives us, what impels us. Uh, he was unique, too, at finding stories, the metaphor, um, the cloudy crystal ball, for example. Uh, you know, when climate scientists like Noah try and uh, understand the climatic shape of things to come over the next century, there's a lot of uncertainty in those forecasts, but there are a lot of things that we know. So how do we reduce the cloudiness in that, in that crystal ball? How do we peer more reliably into the future? He was a master at that sort of communication, at 
the, the loaded die was, was another <laughs> metaphor for mm -hmm. the future, that uh, by burning fossil fuels and changing the chemical composition of the atmosphere, we're loading the die. <laughs> uh, and even now, with things like ClimateGate, where there were publicly expressed uh, concerns about uh, emails, we heard some of that in the video, or GlacierGate and uh, one or two errors in the IPCC fourth assessment report of you know, several thousand pages in, in length. Steve found, curiously enough, a baseball metaphor uh, to, to explain that and, and said, listen, you wouldn't expect a player to have a batting average of 1,000 the whole, sure. the whole season. Right. Um, they strike out. And in this vast IPCC fourth assessment report, there are errors. But we've identified them, and we correct them. And the, the bulk of the science, the vast majority of the scientific information in these reports is the best available information we have. So it, it was that ability to explain things, to find pictures, stories, images, metaphors that was so unique about Steve. Ben, Sci ben Santer is a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. We're discussing the late climate climatologist Steven Schneider at Climate One, also with uh, Noah Diffenbaugh from Stanford. Uh, so you said that his communication was a gift. Uh, can that kind of skill be trained? Can scientists be trained to be better communicators, or is it something that they just have to have uh, from the beginning, and if they don't have it, then they're not going to be good communicators? Do you want me or, or no? What, what do you think? Um, well, I, I think that in Steve's case, it absolutely was a gift, um, in, my, in my experience anyways. I, mean, I, I think... Uh, you know, there's no doubt that he, he communicated in a way that the public could understand better than any other climate scientist that I'm aware of. But I also think that he communicated in a way that other scientists could understand. Uh, you know, so a lot of those metaphors that Ben mentioned uh, are his ways of, of phrasing complex problems. When I would hear them, I'd think, wow, yeah, that's, that's right. Um, and I, I would understand a problem in a, in a different way that I, than I hadn't understood it before. Um, and I think as scientists, we're, you know, we spend so much time and effort um, trying to understand a really complex system uh, that to be able to communicate it is really a different set of skills often. And Steve somehow had, had that full set of skills uh, to be an you know, absolute first-rate leading scientist and at the same time uh, find a way to communicate with his colleagues and and with the general public. So I personally, I think it was a gift. Did you receive any science, uh, any communication training, either of you, any communication training coming up as a climatologist? Or is that something you just have to figure out and learn on the job to do yourself, how to speak in terms that are accessible to people uh, in the media or in the broad public? Now, you've more recently minted as a climatologist. Um, well, so in a, you know, in a, in a normal PhD program, uh, there's certainly an emphasis on communication, but it's primarily on communication with your colleagues, whether it's... Uh, Who understand complex, when you speak in code, or at least in, in um, climate language. Well, we, we, we speak in a common language. Um, there's, there's much less emphasis on uh, speaking differently with the public, or what, um, what it might take to translate our you know, internal language to a broader public that isn't part of that conversation on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, that being said, uh, while there's not any formal uh, part of most 
most science PhD programs, um, there is quite a bit of training available now, and there are groups that are um, actively uh, engaging with scientists to, to try to help bridge that communication gap. And depending on the institution, uh, various universities uh, will be um, more supportive of, of that activity. And certainly universities in general and, and also the, the national labs uh, see it as their mission to communicate with the public, a part of the mission in addition to the, to the discovery mission, the, the, the communication mission is very important. So I, I personally feel that there's a lot of support for getting better at, at those aspects of communication. It, it just happens to be very difficult. Ben, you work at a national lab. I mean, is Livermore doing more to try to bridge the gulf between this expert scientific community and a public that increasingly uh, believes that uh, it, it's not ha that climate change is either not happening or not caused by humans? Well, um, to answer the previous question first, I didn't receive any training uh, in science communication. Sort of learning on the job, I think, uh, mm -hmm. over the last uh, couple of decades. Um, and with regard to is there training available, I just wanted to echo Noah's comment. There are programs like the Aldo Leopold program that Steve right. was involved with and Terry is involved with that help to uh, train climate scientists and put them in different situations, um, sometimes hostile situations, to, to try and uh, give them some, some means of dealing with stuff they might encounter in their future careers. I think that's very valuable. Um, with regard to the question about uh, the lab, um, the lab has been very supportive of the sort of climate research that my colleagues and I do. Um, I uh, study climate fingerprinting, so my job is to try and um, better understand the causes of climate change and unravel uh, natural and human influences on climate. And I think uh, an organization like Lawrence Livermore National Lab recognizes that you can't conduct science in a vacuum. That you also have to, in addition to doing um, science in the public and national interest, you have to find mechanisms of communicating what you do, why it matters, and why people should care about it. And are they concerned at all about the controversy that's, that swirls around climate science that, that might hurt the funding for the lab? Or anyone tell you to, hey, just kind of keep it lay low because it don't you know, cause so much trouble because this is a very polarized and, and hot political issue? I've received terrific support from Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Again, I think they understand that political climates come and go. They change. Administrations wax and, and wane. But they're there for the long haul. Um, their responsibility is to do the best possible science in a number of different areas, national security, um, development of uh, new energy sources, climate science. And they recognize that they have to try and do that science uh, irrespective of the, the color of the, uh, the political administration that happens to be in power. Uh, and that that is their their main interest, serving the public, serving the national interest. I'm Greg Dalton at Climate One, and my guests today are Ben Santer from Lawrence Livermore National Lab and Noah Diffenbaugh from Stanford University. You mentioned the Leopold program at Stanford, and I have a quote here from a Josh Schimmel, um, who was one of the scientists who went through that program, who says, scientists think that if they just dump out more information, other people will get it. But that's not true. As scientists, we need to do a better job communicating our stories. 
Think about communication as your job to sell the story and make it available to the reader. Um, do you agree that, that scientists often think that they just put out the facts that everybody will see it the same way and that they ought to be think of themselves as storytellers and, and do a better job telling the story? Ben? Yes, I agree. Uh, when I started off as a climate scientist, I believed that if you did the best possible science, it would be good enough. Ultimately, people would do the right thing if the science was credible, if it was compelling, if the, the physical evidence was consistent, coherent, if you could see, as we do, uh, changes, signals in many different components of the climate system, um, independently monitored components, the ocean, land surface temperature, uh, extent of Arctic sea ice, uh, temperatures in the atmosphere, um, retreat of, of glaciers more or less around the world. And if you could show that such changes were not consistent with our best understanding of natural forces alone, as we have done, that that would be good enough. But it's not. <laughs> it's been obvious over the last couple of years, the last year in particular, that even if the science is very compelling and credible, even if we have assessment reports uh, from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, U.S. National Academy of Sciences, mm -hmm. U.S. Climate Change Science Program, and they all say more or less the same thing. Natural causes alone can't explain what we're seeing. It's not enough. I think we do have, as scientists, responsibilities not just to do the science, publish papers in the peer-reviewed literature, and regard our responsibility then as finished. We also have, as Steve well recognized, the responsibility to tell people why they should care about it and what you've learned and what is robust and what is uncertain. By Steve, we're referring to Steve Schneider, the late Stanford climatologist. Noah, do you also see storytelling? Do you agree that, that scientists often think that this, they're doing good work and that that's kind of the truth will prevail? We're here at the Commonwealth Club. We have on the wall out there. We, our mission is just to set the world uh, truth uh, free in the world as if that's enough, as if truth will prevail. Is that true in climate science? Well, I think that um, doing good science and uh, doing the most you know, skeptical, rigorous science that we can, and publishing that in the peer review arena and ending the process there is easier than going through that process and then also uh, explaining it in a way that someone who's not in that field can understand. Um, so I think that, you know, with regard to, to the quote um, that you read, I think that it's, in some ways, it's the path of least resistance to to dump the information on the world. Go back um, to your lab and your office. And yeah, and do it again for the next paper. Um, and I, that being said, I, I agree with Ben that in, in the real world, that's not enough. Um, I think that we're in a challenging position as climate scientists in that uh, there's a very charged political atmosphere um, out in the real world. And, and it, it is difficult uh, to do both and, and to uh, be as objective as possible uh, while intersecting with that very charged and sometimes very personal atmosphere. Wieslaw Maslowski was here recently. He's an Arctic sea ice expert at the Naval Postgraduate School. And he basically said, look, you know, communication is not in my job description. It's not, I don't get compensated for it. That's not how I, how I advance my career. And it was basically saying, you know, what kind of differentiation of what you're saying is that 
communication is another thing. Um, part of what I hear you saying is that some people, climate scientists, might be reluctant to communicate because either it's not in their, their best skill or in their nature, or they might get personal attacks for doing so and go into a political realm where they want to do science and not get into politics. Do you think that some scientists are sort of pulling back these days and, and trying to either stay out of the, the, the public fray because it's so uncomfortable or so politically charged? Noah, do you think that there's a... Well, I think, I think there are certainly... Uh, there are many excellent scientists working in this area that do not communicate... Uh, with the public, and by choice, they just like don't do. Well, whether they do, why, why they do or do not, would be a question for each of them individually. Uh, I can say from my own personal experience um, that I, I feel that I have a responsibility to answer a question when I'm asked, and uh, I think I have a responsibility as a citizen to, um, you know, I, I certainly receive grants from taxpayers through funding agencies, and and. Uh, I'm a professor at a university, and I feel like that's part of my responsibility as a citizen and, and as a faculty member. Um, but I will say that it, it comes with costs. There's no doubt about it. I mean, you, I, I think that one has to develop somewhat of a thick skin in order to, to be in that arena, even if it's, even if it's only uh, being in that arena episodically. Uh, it certainly, especially now with technology the way that it is um, in terms of the, the way that information is shared, uh, I'd, I've noticed that you know, in the last five years that I've been um, interacting with the media relatively regularly, uh, it's certainly intensified in terms of the, uh, the personal attacks. So let's talk about those, those personal attacks. Ben Santer, you've received some uh, personal attacks and have some famous episodes back into the 90s uh, involving the media, et cetera. Um, you know, what toll has that taken on you? Has that uh, caused you to sort of step back and maybe not stick your neck out there so much? Well, it's interesting. Um, one of the ironies of my scientific career is that I'm actually a very private person. I'm uh, a rock climber and a mountaineer, and I'm happiest when I'm out there hiking uh, in the hills or climbing uh, far from the maddening crowd. Yet the irony of my scientific career is that it seems to have thrust me into very public uh, settings where I have to take a position, where I don't have the luxury of remaining silent. Um, like Noah uh, said, I, I believe that if you do have um, <clears throat> expert information on the nature and causes of climate change, if you spend all your life studying that, you have a responsibility to tell people about that, particularly when that work is challenged or misrepresented, as it frequently is in public discourse and um, in the political arena, too. Uh, we can't just do the research, publish the papers, and let powerful forces say, well, it's all the sun, or we know nothing about the causes of climate change, or the earth isn't warming. Uh, those statements are scientifically incorrect, and you can't watch and stand there idly and let people continue to maintain uh, these uh, incorrect uh, statements. Steve recognized that. Steve Schneider recognized I think that part of our job, too, is to demystify. <laughs> part of our job is to um, speak truth to power. When people try and, uh, <clears throat> for whatever reason, uh, demonize climate science and climate scientists, you can't just stand there and be a, be a bystander. Uh, so 
when you do that, when you venture out into the public arena, uh, there are people who do not like that. There are people who would uh, prefer that you remain silent, that you stay in your office, that you don't speak out on these, these issues. And uh, there are, particularly today, powerful forces of unreason, I like to call them, who seek to mandate the scientific equivalent of what people called no-go areas in Northern Ireland. You do research in climate fingerprinting or paleoclimate or the development of surface temperature data sets and come up with findings we don't like, we're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. And that's what's happening. That is... You get the, threatening phone calls, emails? Um, threatening emails, um, a dead rat dropped on my doorstep. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of these things are concerning. They're concerning because they affect the safety of the people you love, of your family. And that makes me very angry. And it's, it's sometimes difficult to dissipate that anger. Uh, you're dealing with some faceless entities who, in many cases, have never met you, don't know you, um, haven't read a single paper you've written, uh, and yet feel quite comfortable hiding behind the anonymity of their keyboards, um, threatening uh, various dire things if you continue to do your work. Again, Steve Schneider was fearless. He recognized that you can't let the bullies win. Uh, you've got to, uh, at some stage in your career, if you are in a position um, to defend your colleagues, your peers, and the science itself, you have to do it. Noah, also, do you get uh, the same kind of heat, and how, does, how do you respond when you get the same kind of... Oh, well, I, I certainly don't get the same kind of heat that, that Ben gets. Um, and I, as I have said to Ben, um, personally, I mean, I, I, I'm in awe that, that uh, he can withstand that kind of heat, and that Steve, you know, Steve, that's the kind of heat that Steve received, and I'm in awe that, that Steve could withstand that kind of heat, and um, I don't, I don't, I have to ask myself if I, if I could or not. I, I get a... Do you ever uh, wonder, like, why did I get into this business? I didn't, I should have picked, uh, you know, um, another area of science. Well... Yeah, I guess that a lot of the people that I um, was an undergraduate student with seem to have a different life uh, than I do, which is, you know, I, I love my job. Um, I don't like the emails that I get or the, um, you know, the blog posts or, or whatnot. Uh, you know, but that, I guess that comes with the territory. And, um, you know, I, I think, I think as, as scientists, we have, we have an incredible opportunity. Uh, you know, society's given us a, you know, wonderful... Um, license to, to follow our curiosity and, and to do it in the most objective, rigorous way that we can. And um, I couldn't ask for anything else. And you know, part of that at, at this time and place is that uh, we, from time to time, uh, undergo personal attacks. Uh, I, I don't think that those personal attacks help, help us do more objective uh, science necessarily. Uh, do they have a chill on some people who are not as brave as Ben or others who might say, yeah, I'm not going to reach that far on that paper or maybe I'm going to go over here and sit over there. I mean, is there a chilling effect at all in the scientific community, these, these attacks? Or do they just bounce off and they're, and they're rubber bullets, they bounce off, nothing happens? Well, I, I can only speak for myself and uh, to the extent that I receive them, they don't bounce off of me. Um, I, but I, I, I tend to be emotional. <laughs> Fair enough. I, I mean, I don't know how they would be, uh, Ben. Yeah, uh, let me just amplify on what Noah said. One of the things I recognized is that uh, 
what we do is a privilege. It's not an inalienable right. Um, <clears throat> we uh, chose to be climate scientists because we're impelled by curiosity. We want to figure out the way the real world works, um, what the drivers of climate change are. Uh, we're not, as Pat Michaels asserted, uh, like junkies just waiting for a fix of government money. That's not why any of us chose to, to do this. It's the search for understanding. Those tantalizing moments when you feel that you, and only you, have some piece of the complex climate change puzzle. Understand something that nobody else does. That's why you do it. But that privilege to do research in the public and in the national and global interest, again, is a privilege. And there are powerful forces out there uh, who would want to take away that privilege. I don't think we can let that happen. That does not serve anyone well, um, regardless of their political or religious affiliation. Uh, I think the, the lesson from some of the events of the last few years is when you want to figure out what to do about complex um, environmental issues, uh, you want the best available information. You don't want to filter the information, so you, you only listen to what you want to hear. That spells disaster for good decision-making, for taking smart decisions on what to do about climate change. Ben Santer is a climate scientist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, also here with Noah Diffenbaugh, professor of climate science uh, and Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton, and this is Climate One. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the particular science. Um, the summer of 2010 was a remarkable summer. We saw uh, wildfires in Russia, we saw floods in Pakistan, mudslides in China. Um, was that an anomalous summer, or does that tell us, uh, is that sort of the, the shape of things to come that the uh, climate models predict? There's going to be more of those types of events, even though you can't attribute climate to any particular climate event. Ben? Uh, yes. I think that uh, one of one of the things that is new and exciting in, in climate fingerprinting is the attempt to try and understand those extreme events, how human actions are changing the likelihood of certain threshold crossing events, like the 2003 European summer heat wave, which was off the charts. 30,000 something people died in, in Europe? Two degrees Celsius warming in southern Europe in the summer of 2003 beyond normals. Uh, and what people can do now with computer models of the climate system is try and see how human actions change the likelihood of that type of event. And our best understanding is that as we uh, burn fossil fuels, as we change the chemical composition of the atmosphere, increase levels of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and warm the planet, uh, one of the things we also do is we change the statistics of extreme events and Noah has, has uh, yeah, done a lot of curves, this yeah, type of work. You, you shift the bell curve, mm -hmm. basically. You change the frequency and the intensity of heat waves, and there's been evidence of that that was reported on in the last IPCC report. Uh, you change the number of um, warm days, the number of cold nights. Uh, you change heavy rainfall, too. A warmer atmosphere can hold more moisture, and more of that moisture falls in heavier rain events. Again, that's something we've actually observed in the United States. So things like the 2010 um, fires in Russia, the extreme heat there, the uh, flooding which affected 20 million people in Pakistan, 
That is not unexpected behavior. That's the point to get across here, that that is consistent with our understanding of the types of changes we should be seeing and will be seeing as the planet continues to warm. Noah, you've done some work on the southwestern part of the United States. Um, how hot, how bad is it going to get in the southwestern, in other parts of the United States? You've done some modeling there on what we can expect regarding heat in the climate um, era. Yeah, so we had a, uh, a paper, a student and I had a paper that came out this summer uh, on the U.S. And, and what we might expect over the next three decades uh, as greenhouse gas concentrations increase. And um, what we expect in terms of the say the carbon dioxide concentrations is relatively moderate over the next three decades compared to a lot of the scenarios that we hear about, uh, say, for the year 2100. Um, so this is a, a global warming envelope that, that falls within uh, the Copenhagen Accord, for example. So we wanted to focus on this near-term period to try and to... And it falls within the life period of most people in this room and listening to this on the radio, something people can relate to. That's one of my frustrations with climate science. Is like 2100, I'm like, a lot of people respond, and I know you guys have more confidence the further out you go. So anyways, continue about closer in, 30 years. Well, so those are the reasons you mentioned were part of why we were interested in this, in this period. Um, and so over this period, we expect something on the order of another degree Celsius of global warming uh, relative to the last decade. And uh, we find that, that over the US, the summer temperatures increase two to three degrees Celsius as a result of that one degree of global warming. So an enhancement over the US relative to the global average. And then if we look at individual points in the US and ask how often do historical hot events occur? So what, uh, say, the hottest season of the second half of the 20th century or the longest heat wave that occurred in the second half of the 20th century, how often does an event of that magnitude occur going forward? We find that uh, by the decade of the 2030s, uh, the hottest, what was the hottest season of the second half of the 20th century occurs anywhere from five to eight times in the U.S. And in the southwestern part of the U.S., the, the warming is, is very robust, very intense. Uh, and most areas see something on the order of seven or eight of those historically hottest seasons uh, in a single decade. So the former extremes become the new norm? Uh, to the extent that, that seven years out of ten uh, is normal, then... If you're a baseball uh, player, you hit 7 out of 10, you're, you're, you're in the Hall of Fame. So, uh, right? Uh, so the things that used to be unusual are going to be more common in terms of the heat, the heat yeah, extremes. The most unusual summer of the second half of the 20th century, uh, we project to happen seven or eight times in a decade uh, in the southwestern U.S. And are you able, policymakers often are frustrated because the models are so macro that they don't give them actionable intelligence, actionable information within their congressional district or their state or their area of responsibility, a water district, that sort of thing. How close are you, these models getting to give policymakers information they can act on to say, look, this is going to affect our water supply here. We've got to start building desalination plants or whatever we're doing, responding, preparing for these sorts of things. Well, so we've, we've pushed uh, over the last five years or so uh, to dividing the world up into 25-kilometer boxes, so say 15 miles on a side. Let me ask you a question. You're talking in kilometers and Celsius, and most Americans live in miles and Fahrenheit, and Celsius and kilometers, even with, you know, don't translate. Is that a scientific convention, or that, that doesn't translate well to uh, Well, it's, it's absolutely a scientific convention. In fact, um, if a paper uh, is submitted uh, with with uh, the, those 
U English units rather That's funny than British rather than yes. what we call SI units. Uh, it will actually be sent back, and, and the authors will be required to, to change all the units. So, so it's example, more than a convention. So this is an example of having to sort of speak, run off a differing operating system when you do your scientific work versus your communication work, to speak in miles versus in, in one part of your life and speak in uh, kilometers in another part if of your life. If you're speaking in, to the public in the US. Yeah. There are, there are countries, there are countries that, that use uh, <laughs> most of the <laughs> kilometers in Celsius. Yes. Um, so we're the exception. We dumb it down for America. Is that, yeah. Um, at any rate, uh, a, a lot of what my lab group does is, is try to push those, those spatial and also temporal resolutions. So uh, to really try to get down to the, to the scales that, that matter for, for humans and other, other living things. Um, so you know, we're, it, it's pretty routine for us to look at at say the county level, um, and now we're we're trying to get down really to the local level where we're looking at say one mile, dividing the world up into one mile boxes. Ben, let's get your comment, and then we'll go to the audience questions. We're going to bring out a microphone and invite you to make a comment or question here uh, in just a minute. So um, the models, how precise are they in terms of you know are they getting better and being able to give more certainty closer in that we can as humans and as policymakers can act upon. Because 2100, we live in a world where political cycles are two years, news cycles are constant. 2100, people can't grok that. Are, you, are the models going to be able to give us information close in that we can relate to and act upon? Well, they're getting better. As Noah mentioned, the, the resolution uh, of these models is continuously improving, getting finer. We're getting more granularity in how we represent the surface of the Earth, the atmosphere of the ocean and uh, the, the regional scale effects of climate change. The real challenge is that as resolution is improving and these models are getting better in their ability to represent, for example, um, the Central Valley and, and uh, the Sierras and the effects of, of mountains on rainfall patterns, they're also getting more complex. We're putting new things in them and, and, and building more complexity, uh, for example, uh, we're trying to incorporate carbon cycle models in these models of the physical atmosphere and ocean and the sea ice. We're trying to build in um, atmospheric chemistry. We're trying to improve the representation of the land surface and things like the release of methane from thawing permafrost into the atmosphere, that being a concern because methane is a potent greenhouse gas. So with um, an expansion in our computer uh, capabilities to, to model the Earth system, there's also come an expansion in complexity of these models. And the real challenge is to put your finger on what is robust in these um, model projections of future climate change and, and what is physically interpretable, what can we understand. And I'll give you one example of that, of something that I think is robust and physically interpretable. So model projections of climate change over the next century, if you look here in California, they differ in terms of the projected rainfall changes. But they're very similar in terms of projecting increases in temperature in response to increases in greenhouse gases. And one consequence of that is that uh, when you start melting snowpack uh, in the Sierra uh, and much of the western US and, and Canada, you get more runoff from major um, rivers earlier in the year when we need it less. And that's primarily uh, driven by the temperature increase and rather insensitive to the model differences in rainfall projections. So that's the challenge, to identify things like that 
that have tremendous relevance for society and that are um, robust across a range of different model projections. Ben Santer is a climatologist at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, also here with Noah Diffenbaugh from Stanford University. I'm Greg Dalton, and this is Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, who's first up? Yes, sir. Very interesting a program. Uh, before the election, I read that um, some politicians were talking about attacking climate scientists and climate policy. Now that Republicans have taken over the House uh, of Congress, how will, this, how will the political climate for climate change and climate scientists change? The Los Angeles Times reported on that uh, recently. Ben? Um, <clears throat> I think you're referring to uh, Representative Issa and Representative Sensenbrenner, who have uh, given public notice that they intend to investigate ClimateGate and climate scientists. Um, personally, I think that there are other more important legislative um, problems out there. Uh, ClimateGate has been scrutinized by a number of different um, investigations. There was an investigation, um, several investigations at Penn State University, three investigations at the University of East Anglia. All of them found that there was no manipulation of data, uh, that the science of climate change is robust, uh, that these emails, um, which were illegally stolen um, by person or persons still unknown, uh, uh, do not undermine the basic foundations of climate science, that uh, the planet is warming, that humans are largely culpable for the changes we've seen over the second half of the 20th century. Um, it's very frustrating for me to, to think that over the next year we likely face uh, very unproductive, um, acrimonious uh, hearings that do not help politicians or the public to understand the basics of climate science and why it matters and uh, why we need to figure out what to do about it. Uh, but as Steve um, did many times in his career... And that's Steve Schneider. The Steve Schneider. Uh, I think it is our responsibility to testify at these kind of hearings and try, even in this difficult political environment to bring people back to the basic science, to convince our legislature, legislators uh, and policymakers, regardless of their political affiliation, that if they have kids and grandkids, they have an investment in the future. They need to care about that investment. One would think that that's some, um, something that is accessible to, to anyone in the Senate and Congress. I hope so. Noah, anything to add? Um, well, I think that it's you know it's very fairly straightforward to establish that there has been a strategy of attacking scientists. Um, whether that's more more or less effective than attacking the science, I'd, uh, that might be a more complex issue. But uh, it's certainly been tried, um, and you know I think it, it you know it certainly makes it uh, more difficult to uh, it's hard enough to to undergo the the scientific. The criticisms of your peers, uh, let, you know, that are that are about the scientific content of your work, let alone um, the personal attacks. Uh, so, I think that you know it's it's an effective strategy insofar as it um, 
you know, provides a distraction, provides a stress. Uh, I think that you know, something that I observe that is missed in, the, um, in a lot of the public discussion is the fact that scientists are people. Uh, you know, you hear the IPCC this and climate scientists that. And, you know, I'm, I'm just a, a guy with three kids and a mortgage and, um, you know, I, I, I love my job and I'm trying to do, do a good job at my job. Um, but we're not a monolith. And, you know, I, the, Ben mentioned the climate gate emails. Congress has mentioned the climate gate emails. I've read through the climate gate emails. And, you know, what comes out to me is that, is, uh, that these are people. Uh, they're, they're people that I know. And, and you know, there, there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of very endearing uh, humanity. I, I think that um, more than anything for me, that's, that's the impression that I get is, is that this is a difficult problem. These are, you know, we're real people trying to understand a very complex system, a very difficult problem, in not in a vacuum, in a very difficult public environment that's that's uh, in some, at least in some aspects, hostile to to what we're trying to do. Ben Sander, you want to add something? Yeah, I just wanted to add uh, to that that uh, we we are people, and we are people as the Climate Gate emails reveal, working under very difficult conditions. Um, some of the emails from scientists at the Climatic Research Unit at the University of East Anglia um, reveal that these people were trying to do their jobs under persistent and systematic uh, attacks, often by abuse of Freedom of Information Act requests, uh, where... Tried and true strategy of harassment to suck up your time and distract you. And, and it's very effective. And uh, it's not only been directed at the University of East Anglia, it's also been uh, used to good effect here in the United States. And that makes it very difficult to do your job. And again, most of us are in this uh, not to uh, change world government or uh, get rich quick. We're in it for the science because we want to better understand the science. So it's very frustrating if you're not allowed to do your job. Do I understand some of the frustration expressed in those emails? You bet. And the other thing to note, I think, is that, as, as Noah mentioned, the IPCC is often portrayed as some monolith, some old boys type club where everyone's slapping each other on the back. Oh, hail fellow, well met. That's not the way it is at all. Science is intensely uh, competitive and and the kudos, the credits, are to people who show that this idea is wrong. (laughs) Not people who... um, You don't sit in big leather chairs with cigars, (laughs) swilling scotch, saying, good job, old chap. No, No, it's intensely uh, competitive. People want to protect turf. Uh, It's it's the marketplace of ideas. And ultimately, what rises to the top in science is ideas that are tried and tested, uh, that are examined in many different ways, held up to the light by many different people, and are shown to be solid, robust. That's what matters in science. And the amazing thing is that so many different people from different countries, using different methods, different data sets, have basically told the same story. Natural causes alone can't explain what we see. Now, you may not like that conclusion, uh, but unfortunately, that's the reality. (laughs) We're discussing climate science at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club with Ben Santer and Noah Diffenbaugh. Next question. Please. It gets boring if I ask all the questions. Come on. Thank you. 
Um, I, I have a question. I've had the impression sometimes that within the scientific community, there's skepticism towards people who are really good communicators. And I think about, say, Carl Sagan, one of the most famous communicators of science of all time, was not elected to the National Academy of Sciences, some say because there was resentment of him as being such a good communicator or, there, or it's looked down upon if you're working so hard to communicate with the public, how can you be doing good research at the same time? Um, I want to know if you, if, if, that, if you think that exists, if you see it, um, and if, you, if that affects people's desires to really communicate the science as scientists. Well, no, think, no diff about? Uh, yeah, so as Ben just mentioned, it's, you know, the scientific community is, uh, in general, intensely competitive, and uh, there are a lot of large egos. And I think the reality is, is it's, it's um, really hard to be the best in the world at one thing. In fact, for most people, by definition, it's impossible to be the best in the world at one thing. Uh, and I, so I, I would say, if I'm just being completely frank, I think, I think that what you've uh, observed, I, I certainly see, see aspects of that in, in, in the communities that I intersect with. And I think that a lot of it is just envy and jealousy. Um, that, I mean, Steve Schneider was a genius in many, many, many dimensions. And uh, he, he, was, he was a genius in, in many scientific dimensions. He was a genius in, in, in the communication dimension. And um, that's just the reality. It's, uh, so, I, you know, there, there may be resentment uh, but it's, it's, if people resent someone being a fantastic scientist and a fantastic communicator, they're, they're, they're just jealous, in my opinion. Um, I think that for most of us mortals, uh, you know, there's only so much time and energy in a day and uh, so many days in a year. And uh, so personally, I, I think that I would communicate with the public better if I was uh, thinking about it and practicing it in a concentrated way more than I do. Uh, so I, I spend a lot of time and effort and energy trying to understand this really complex system that we're calling the climate system. Uh, and that's exhausting. And uh, I fall short most of the time. My batting average is, is low when it comes to uh, the peer review process, um, funding rates and, and whatnot. So it, it's a really hard job. And to then be a fantastic communicator on top of that, I, I, I think that it takes a lot of inherent talent to be able to communicate well, but you have to work at it. You have to think about it. You have to be very self-aware. Uh, and to do all of that, it, it, it takes a really rare person to be able to excel in, in all of those dimensions simultaneously. Sounds like there's a new job description for a science communicator. I know that uh, NASA Goddard and some organizations are putting more money into have people, in fact, I have some relatives who are in that bridge, taking science and putting it into English and things that people can explain, because it is, it is a different kind of person. It's a journalistic role or communication role rather than a, than a research role. Ben, do you have anything to add to that? Or we'll go to the next question. Yes, sir. Um, you describe why you do do this work, and it's kind of finding that nugget of information that no one else really knows about the world. But it must get frustrating for you at times when you know what's happening to the climate and what's happening to the world, but outside the things that need to happen in terms of legislation, economics, et cetera, are not happening. So my question is, what strategies have you seen where you're information, those nuggets are being translated in the right way that are actually being action on, taken action on to 
translate to some impact into what you see needs to happen in this world for us to stabilize. Do you have hope? Ben, sure. Uh, well, I do have hope. Sometimes people ask me, how do you go into work at all? Why don't you come away every day just depressed? Um, I'm, I'm not depressed. Uh, I do think that over my lifetime in climate science, we have seen dramatic changes, not only in the physical climate system, but also in our understanding of the causes of those changes, and also in the media and in the public. I think there has been some signal there in tandem to the, the signal in the physical climate system. And that signal is we've moved from um, is the world warming to yeah, it's warming. Um, are humans culpable in some of that warming? Yeah, they are, to a debate on what to do about it. And that's where the contention is now, the what to do about it. Um, but it's encouraging to me that we've gotten to this point uh, and that despite tremendous differences in national self-interest, folks from around the world are sitting down at the same table. They are going to meetings like Copenhagen. They are trying to grapple with the what do we do about it all. Um, that, that is encouraging to me. I think the challenge, again, is to, to take those nuggets of, of what we know as scientists and to bring people back to the science, to put it right in front of them so they can't avoid it, so they have to confront it, um, to demystify it and to, uh, to point out that they cannot take refuge in things like climate gate. They cannot dismiss all of this as a hoax, a scam, a conspiracy. Ultimately, future generations and their own constituents will hold them accountable for the decisions they reach over the next decade or so. And that's what we need to tell our elected representatives. Next question, please. Hi. Um, I, we've talked a lot about the communication challenge and uh, engaging the public and also policymakers and others. Um, and. I guess it goes without saying a fundamental part of that is the media as a bridge uh, to that communication. How would you characterize the role of the media, especially over the past year, for better or worse? And what would you like to see the relationship between this climate science community and the media moving forward be um, to facilitate more understanding and engagement? Sure, Ben. Um, I've been disappointed with a lot of the media coverage in the last year. I think much of that coverage, particularly in the initial stages of ClimateGate, was reflect, reflexive, knee-jerk, um, blood-in-the-water kind of reporting, rather than the thoughtful, um, investigative reporting that I would have hoped to see. What, what are the drivers for this um, theft of... 1,000-plus emails immediately before the Copenhagen meeting. Who might be involved? Why did scientists um, write these things? What, what are the scientific issues that are really of concern here? Um, much of that thoughtful investigative reporting was missing in action. It wasn't there. And ultimately, that's what we need. We don't need false balance uh, in these kind of issues. We need a search for understanding, and that's, 
something I've seen very little of in reporting on ClimateGate and on climate science. It is, as, as Steve um, Schneider often said, this, this false balance that you see in much of the media reporting, expert A, expert B, uh, and the more difficult quest for understanding and conveying complex information to the public, that's what we need to encourage. And I don't know what the best mechanism is for doing that, but we've seen very little of that. Actually, one of the best stories I saw post-ClimateGate was from Al Jazeera. It was not from, from any um, U.S. Uh, media outlet. Oh, boy. Some of your uh, followers are going to love that one. So, um, <laughs> no, anything to add? Um, well, I guess I can speak a little bit to my anecdotal experience. And the first time that I really um, experienced kind of the media crush was in 2005. Um, and at that point, I was, was over, over a week or so, I talked to quite a few environment reporters uh, about that particular paper that came out. You know, people that were, they were science writers. And I've had a number of papers get covered in the media. Uh, uh, you know, uh, and then I mentioned this paper in 2010. So over a number of papers over the, over the last five years. And, and this summer, um, I didn't talk to many uh, science writers that were trained as scientists, trained to be science reporters. And so this is anecdotal. I don't know if, um, if in the broad media industry there are fewer of them now than there were in 2005. But my experience is that they've become progressively less and less as, I've, as, I've, as I field calls uh, about new science. And I think that, that that's a gap. It gets, it gets to the last question as well, um, that you know, bringing, bringing the reporters up to speed about the science uh, is a challenge, uh, and, and, it, and it makes for a different kind of communication with the public. Um, I think that this can also be extended outside of the media uh, into uh, government and other, other decision-making entities. So uh, having people that are you know, PhD-trained scientists working as staffers in Congress, uh, that makes a big difference for the communication between science and, and the, the legislature, uh, as opposed to um, whatever recent bachelor's degree from the district uh, being the staffer that, that's engaging with scientists. And I've experienced both of those, and it, it makes a big difference. Uh, so I think increasing the scientific training, the fundamental scientific training uh, across the American landscape, uh, maybe that's a, a selfish uh, answer, but I, I think that that would go a long way uh, to improving the state of communication. We have just a couple minutes left. Uh, ben Center, you want to get a word on that? I, I just wanted to add to what Noah said. If, if you want to do the kind of careful climate modeling work that NOAA does, it's a decades-long investment. <laughs> you can't just um, do something like that in, in a month, in a year. And it's the same, I feel, with science journalism on issues like climate change. You can't hope to come into this complex scientific landscape, understand the personalities, the credibility of different people, uh, their expertise, and, and assimilate that information overnight. You have to make a long-term investment to get it right, just like you have to in the climate modeling. And if we as a, science, as a society really want to get it right and improve public understanding of complex issues, not only climate science, but, but others too, you have to make the investment in the reporting too. You can't just 
put some uh, untrained individual in there and say, um, go, and, go and cover this and expect uh, some, some wonderful, accurate story. Uh, and that's a challenge. The media landscape is changing. We do have fewer science journalists out there. And uh, you, know, you look at, at China. China is increasing by a factor of two the money they're going to spend on science communication next year. Where are we? Why aren't we doing that? So we need to translate it from Chinese. Maybe that's the answer. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, we are out of time. We have to end it there. Our thanks to uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, climatologist at Stanford University, and Ben Santer, climatologist at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Thank you for your science. Thank you for your courage. Thank you all for coming to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. <laughs>